This is Reset, I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Three black people are dead in Jacksonville, Florida, after a racist white man with swastikas painted on his rifle opened fire at a Dollar General. Gerald Galleon, a 29-year-old customer, was shot as the gunman entered the store last weekend. Angela Michelle Carr, a 52-year-old Uber driver, was killed as she sat in her vehicle outside. And A.J. Laguerre, a 19-year-old store employee, was shot as he tried to flee. The suspect then turned the gun on himself. Now, this comes a little over a year after a racist shooter targeted Black people in Buffalo, New York grocery store, killing 10 and injuring three. And as Black communities are still reeling from the murder of nine churchgoers in Charleston, South Carolina, back in 2015. So how do we cope with the ongoing trauma of these racist killings? And how does media attention and rhetoric potentially influence more extremists? Joining us now to discuss is Dr. Inger Burnett-Zeigler, licensed clinical psychologist and associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine. Welcome back, doctor. Thank you so much for having me. And Echo Yanka, the Thomas M. Cooley Professor of Law at the University of Michigan. Good to have you back on the program, Professor. Thanks for having me back. I'll start with you. What was your reaction when you heard about the shooting? Um, we've gotten to a point where these things are awful and they're always um, disorientating. And particularly when they're racially motivated, they feel like they reach into your home. Um, and at the same time, we're almost used to it. Um, we've gotten, you know, even even in the last few weeks, it's been college campuses, grocery stores. Uh, uh, for me, in the last year, up an hour up the road where I grew up, and an hour another Big Ten institution where kids that look exactly like our students um, experienced a shooting at MSU. So. Mm -hmm. It can feel stunning and disorientating, and then you have that sinking uh, when, not if, feeling nowadays. Doctor, what were your thoughts when we got the news over the weekend? You know, I think the first thing that comes to mind for me is a feeling of numbness um, in response to that yet again, knowing that these things continue to happen over and over again, and it seems like there's a sense of nothing changing. And for many people, and at times, even including myself, a sense of hopelessness for the future. Um, and I know as a clinician that that feeling of numbness, that feeling of kind of being withdrawn and disoriented and hopelessness are a part of the traumatic uh, stress cycle. Yeah. Um, and so for me, you know, I understand it within that context. And you know, I want other people who might be experiencing, you know, those uh, feelings and symptoms to to know that that's a normal response to traumatic stress as well. The more I read about the folks who were killed, um, the more senseless it seems. We've got a devoted dad, a mom who was loved and, and well known in her community, a teenager who was just working at Dollar General trying to help his family make ends meet. Now they're all gone. So, Dr. Burnett Zeigler, that numbness you talk about, I mean, does that increase for you after you learn some of these personal stories? I think what increases is the sense of helplessness, um, this idea that these acts are random, they're unpredictable, that you might be going about your day-to-day -day activity and these types of things can happen, and to a great degree, they're, they're out of your control. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people who see their identities reflected 
um, in those that were killed and those who are at increased risk feel that fear, that intense fear and worry that I could be going to the grocery store, sitting in my car, and mm-hmm. this can happen to me. And there, to some degree, there may be only a limited amount you know, of behavioral steps that I can do to, to keep myself safe. Yeah, I can relate to exactly what you just laid out there, doctor. I mean, ever since the the Tops grocery store shooting in Buffalo last year, I I've just been uneasy every single time I go to the grocery store from start to finish, actually from the moment I get out of my vehicle to that moment when you're, you know, walking out of the store with your groceries back to your car, I am on high alert. Is anywhere safe for for black people in America to just exist? How do you answer that question, Professor Yanka? I mean, look, I think one of the things that um, is always cruelest about black history is how much randomness, um, the kind of randomness with which white rage can destroy black lives, right? So, you know, obviously, if you take a long historical view, it's somebody, um, you know, famously now we have this uh, incredible movie, 12 Years a Slave. But besides the book and besides the story and besides the long history, what it's really about is somebody going around about their lives, a talented musician who just the world makes disappear and their life is shattered. Um, you know, when I think about Emmett Till, I think about the death of an unbelievably small young black man. But what I really think about when I think about Emmett Till is how a random person's anger or accusation can mean your life is forfeit. Yeah. And if you teach criminal law and if you teach policing, you're just forever struck with you know, how precarious. Of course, we all recognize that life for so many of us is precarious. These mass shootings don't just respect race. But for Black Americans in particular, they're part of a long history of a kind of random, ominous racism, which can reach out and strike you down at any moment. Well, to that end, Dr. Burnett Zeigler, I mean, the fact that purely racist mass killings continue to happen, not just these, you know, these, uh, references to the past that we just gave it it's frightening so so how do we begin to process ongoing trauma what are some ways to you know maybe regulate our emotions at times like these yeah i i think you know first recognizing that these events are indeed traumatic exposures you know some people believe that you have to have been there or witnessed it yourself for it to kind of count as a traumatic exposure but secondhand witnessing secondhand hearing about it talking about it can also trigger that traumatic stress response and so the feelings that might be coming up for people the sleeplessness the intense fear and worry the discomfort in the body are are valid and in many ways kind of normative responses to these acute stressors I think that there are some kind of physiological regulation things that people can do to kind of slow down that stress response. Mm-hmm. Um, but going back to, you know, the question that you asked a minute ago about where are we safe, you know, identifying those spaces of safety, because for a lot of people, they they don't feel safe. Mm-hmm. And that lack of safety can, you know, significantly impact where they go on a day-to-day basis. You know, I work with people that 
are afraid to leave their homes and they may not make those grocery store runs or it might be more difficult for them to get to and from work. And so, you know, working with people to be able to develop a behavioral routine whereby they can, to the best degree that they can, you know, continue functioning in a way where they may feel more safe, even mm-hmm. if it's not, you know, the the ultimate sense of safety and identifying those spaces, be it in the home or in other protective spaces in their community or with family where, where they have that increased sense of safety. Let's talk about language because that's that's really important. As, as members of the media, I want to be clear, we here at Reset, we decided to call this shooting as we saw it racist. You know, the shooter wrote about his hatred of black people. Uh, He opened fire in a black neighborhood. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, he drew swastikas on his gun. I have, though, seen other media outlets sort of stick to calling this a, quote, you know, racially motivated attack. And uh, in some few cases, white supremacy is, is linked to these killings. So, Professor Yanka, explain why words matter here. Well, there's just no question that, um, you know, there's no question that when we're not brave enough to call things what they are, it changes what people see, it changes how we internalize it, and more importantly to me, it changes how we as a society mobilize to fight these things. You know, there are certain people who are always going to be quick to say, you can't stop every shooting, you can't do this, and none of us are silly or naive, but we should be honest about the things we're facing. And frankly, we should be honest about the scope of them. So one thing that frustrates me is, even in a case like this, you see people hesitant to call it racist, or you see politicians hesitant to come out and condemn a racist shooting. Mm -hmm. But even when they do, I'm, to be honest, frustrated that the best they can do is take only those signs where people will tell you they're racist in order to call it out, right? So it's sort of only the most obvious blistering person who literally carves a swastika onto his gun and puts the Rhodesia flag on his, you know, on his uh, vest or wherever. Mm -hmm. Um, Only the people who essentially say, Hey, to be clear, I'm racist. Then we have the nerve to say something about it. Um, Now I understand there are lots of fights about how we explain racism, how, uh, how to describe different instantiations those are important fights reasonable people can disagree but let's be honest um if the only courage we have is to haltingly approach only the most obvious brutal racist killings and then muster up some mild words of um of brave rebuke because this one can't be denied um it's no wonder that we will let under the surface the rest of it simmer when can something like this be deemed a hate crime? Is there power in that delineation? Well, the, you know, the fight about hate crimes, you will not be surprised to know, actually tracks our conversation about when people use language. So, in fact, our hate crime laws tend to be very tepid. They tend to um, they tend to be embroiled in all sorts of controversies that we don't see in other crimes. So to give you an example, to your point, um, there are long and and steeped fights in law and academia about how we can determine that something is really racist or racially motivated and how difficult it is for the state to determine somebody's mindset. Mm-hmm. But of course, these are the same questions we have to ask when we ask, it was a murder premeditated? They're not different of kind, right? The law does this every day. And so there's something discouraging about the fact that 
we see it as an insurmountable problem when it's race. Although in all the rest of our ordinary moral, political, and legal lives, we understand that sometimes we have to make tricky decisions. And that reflects in what you were saying about language. In yeah. lots of ordinary life, we make calls. But when it comes to race, everybody walks away unless somebody cars a swastika into their gun. What does the, the carefulness or hesitancy to deem this as a racist act signify to you, doctor? You know, I think that calling things as they are, naming the act as racist is an important part in validating the event and validating the emotional reactions that people are having in response to it. I think that when we're more timid in our language, it serves to have people who are most directly impacted questioning their feelings, questioning, mm -hmm. you know, um, uh, the fear, the worry, um, that they're experiencing, like maybe this isn't as big of a deal. Maybe I'm imagining this, you know, I, I'm often working with people that have experienced, you know, acts of racism directly and their environment would lead them to believe that it's something other than what their experience informs them. Yeah. And so I think it's an important part of validating and the healing process. And it's really important in terms of having people kind of not internalize um, these events as something, you know, being wrong with them in terms of the response that they're exhibiting. You know, like in many of these extremist acts and, and targeted hate crimes, by white people, there's almost always this immediate talk of mental illness, right? The, the Jacksonville shooter is no exception. Uh, this person didn't have a criminal background, but they had been involuntarily detained for mental health reasons in the past. To me, it begs the question, okay, then why was he able to obtain a firearm? But, uh, doctor, I'm also wondering why we often see that same connection, right? The, the young adult white male mental health issues, carrying out heinous crimes. Like, help us make sense of that, if you can. Yeah, you know, I think that people often, often and correctly and sometimes incorrectly as well, associate uh, acts of violence with mental illness. Certainly, you know, there are components of aggressiveness and impulsivity and delusional thoughts and beliefs and paranoia that can result in acts of violence. But I do think that that's a, a, a brush that we wipe much too broadly and something that we should be particularly careful in making that determination that an act like this was a direct result of mental illness. That said, you know, mental illness is an important part of you know, determining who is uh, who is safe to carry a firearm and who isn't, and how individuals who might have a history of uh, history of struggles with a mental health condition are able to legally obtain and carry a firearm is something that's definitely worth further investigation. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis uh, showed up to a prayer vigil after this shooting. Uh, you may have seen the footage. He was booed by some people in the crowd, and they were, they were saying that you know his loose gun laws and his crackdown on teaching accurate American history, all of that is at play in this shooting. Professor Yanko, what do you make of that? 
Yeah, look, I couldn't agree more. I, I am not part of the political class who is going to stand up and yell, you have blood on your hands. I think we use those phrases too glibly. It's, uh, you know, it seems obvious to me there's no direct line between any politician, whether I like or dislike them, and an act of violence like this. But it's not surprising that Governor DeSantis was booed. I would have had to mm-hmm. all, you know, restrain myself as well. Here's what's true. You cannot stand up in these moments of great pain and say, this is a heinous thing where we will do everything we can to support you and then turn around in in moments when the cameras are not as trained on you or the news media is not as focused, undermine every attempt people make to teach black history, the consistency of white violence, the ways in which black people have been criminalized in the public imagination, all the kinds of thoughts that lead this young man to have a gross ideology that he has to kill black people are part of our American history. Yeah, I mean, DeSantis has undermined those at every turn. Yeah. Same with the gun laws. I was thinking that, too. How much of this has to do with where the shooter was located, Professor? I mean, he was essentially being radicalized in the state of Florida where he lived. Absolutely. And look, you know, when people are on the internet trying to radicalize young, particularly white men, trying to teach them that their world is being taken away from them by those people, blacks, Hispanics, maybe women that don't submit to their um, delusional view of how the world should be. Again, nobody thinks that one class or one law made this man as twisted as he is. But a world in which you have a history to know what those thoughts look like, where they come from, what they amount to, a world in which you have a context to understand that black people rising is not the same thing as white people being suppressed. That's a world in which fewer men end up at this twisted ideology. And that's a world that DeSantis likes to deride as woke. And then at the same time, turn around and have no problem making sure that whoever wants, including those with the most twisted ideology, has access to military grade weapons. You can't do that and then show up pretending that um, you're here to support the predictable victims of your uh, political malfeasance. So, Dr. Burnett Zagler, I want to return to what we talked about earlier, right? And it's this fear that still stays with with black people, you know, across the country. Uh, there are official stats to back up those concerns that, you know, that life has, in fact, become more dangerous for us in recent years. Um, you know, a report this year by National Civil Rights Group Leadership Conference Education Fund It found the number of hate crimes are up 80 percent since 2015. There's FBI data also that's showing a spike that happens during presidential elections. Uh, Also, nearly 13,000 victims of hate crimes uh, back in 2021, which is an increase of 11 percent over the year prior. And black people were the most targeted of all groups there as well. So, I mean, many of us have changed some of our daily routines as a result of, of things like this. You said earlier, it's okay to feel the way that we do. It's okay to worry, right? So how could the constant worrying impact us, though? Yeah, it's. it's I don't want to say it's okay. I want to say that it's a normative response to what people have been experiencing in recent years. And so I think it's important that people know that that's a part of the stress response 
cycle. And so, and not only that, not only are hate crimes increasing, not only are people feeling in uh, greater danger, but this is also in a context where Black people in particular are reporting greater amounts of stress related to, you know, income and employment and all of the outputs that are on the other side of coming out of COVID. And so, you know, there are a lot of feelings, uh, potentially harmful feelings that people are trying to manage that certainly have the great potential to negatively impact not only their emotional health, but also physical health in a way that they're functioning in day-to-day life at home and mm-hmm. at work. Um, and so I think attending to that is incredibly important, attending to how it's showing up in the mind when those feelings of fear and worry are coming up, how it shows up in the body, how it shows up in your day-to-day behavior, you know, and taking that next step to get professional mental health treatment, to rely on your systems of support in order to better manage those feelings, but, you know, those negative consequences start to accumulate um, are really, you know, an important next step. We'll leave it there for now. Dr. Inger Burnett-Zeigler is an associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine. And Echo Yanka is the Thomas M. Cooley Professor of Law at the University of Michigan. Thank you both so much.